Good evening. Um, I, I'm Nick Stern. I'm a professor of economics at the LSE. I'm chairing this um, last lecture. Um, I should make it clear that the reason I'm not wearing a tie is that, um, not that I don't have ties, is I haven't got anything to compete with uh, Angus. Um, but it's, it's a great pleasure to introduce him. I mean, you've heard him already in the first two, those of you who have been here, but let, do, let me do my own little quick one. Um, in my view, and I'm very far from alone in this, he's one of the world's really great economists. He also happens to be one of my oldest and closest friends. That's a very special pleasure. And uh, one of whom, one from whom I've learned uh, the most. Um, I wasn't here for the first two because I was in Lima for the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change trying to change the world. Now, what, the world isn't always very grateful, but one of the things I've constantly been reminded of by Angus is that if you're trying to change the world, it might be a good idea to try to understand it first. And um, we think we know that, but we do constantly need reminding of it, and there's no one better to remind us of that than Angus and the model of the way he goes about his work. And he asks the big questions, you know, why people are hungry, sick, uneducated, or homeless. Sometimes we aggregate that into something else called poverty. Sometimes we don't, and perhaps sometimes we shouldn't. But he asks the big questions and more. How do those things, how do those things change? What drives change in those things? And there's nothing that's more important than that. Um, and finally... Um, he's a model not only in pressing for understanding but intellectual integrity. You do start with frameworks and ideas and, think, and thoughts that you think you know perhaps where something is going. So you don't start with nothing. If you started with nothing, you couldn't do anything. But um, Angus relentlessly pursues the evidence and the data and he goes where that takes him. So in so many ways, Angus, you're uh, a model to us all and uh, looking forward very much to listening to you. Thank you very much, Nick. I'm really not sure I can live up to that introduction. It's very challenging to try. I sort of do believe in the division of labor, though. Um, you know, when Nick and I started out together, we'd known each other since we were undergraduates. Um, we were sort of very much on the same page. But Nick has wandered off to seriously change the world while I'm still trying to understand it. So I'm not sure <laughs> I will ever get them beyond the understanding to the changes, but I think it's in safe hands, and I see others here for whom I feel it's in safe hands too. So I'm going to start off by talking... Oh, okay. Um, what's happened here? Um, maybe I have to use the clicker. Whoops. Oh, I know what it is. It's... it's um, this should be the starting slide, and in fact, it's the last slide. So, okay, I got it, I think. So let's try that. Okay, all right. So I'm going to start off talking about the Pope, um, and there. This is an apostolic exhortation, um, which is about a year or so old. Um, it was called Evangelii Gaudium, which means the joy of the gospel. And you can read there what it says and who it's addressed to, which is basically everybody. So this is like the order, not the fact that anyone's excluded from this. 
Um, and this is the date. I like this bit at the end. Um, it would be fun to be able to sign one's papers um, with something like this. But the, the, this is a relatively recent document, um, which is um, November um, last year, so about a year ago. So I've extracted a couple of quotes um, from the English version of this. And if, you, if, you, if you're uncomfortable I'm making fun, I'm really not. Um, and so here are some things that I think are actually really good. Um, while the earnings of a minority are growing exponentially, so too is the gap separating the majority from the prosperity joined by the, enjoyed by those happy few. The imbalance is the result of ideologies which defend the absolute autonomy of the marketplace and financial speculation. Consequently, they reject the right of states charged with vigilance for the common good to exercise any form of control. A new tyranny is thus born, invisible and often virtual, which unilaterally and relentlessly imposes its own laws and rules. Debt and the accumulation of interest also make it difficult for countries to realize the potential of their own economies and keep citizens from enjoying their real purchasing power. That's what I talked about yesterday. To all this, we can add widespread corruption and self-serving tax evasion, which have taken on worldwide dimensions. The thirst for power and possessions knows no limits. In this system, which tends to devour everything which stands in the way of increased profits, whatever is fragile, like the environment, is defenseless before the interests of a deified market, which becomes the only rule. No to a financial system which rules rather than serves. If, if I can link that up to some of the concerns of economists, it says global inequality is rising. Prosperity is only enjoyed by very few. Poverty is stagnant. Inequality undermines democracy in the interests of the very rich. Well, that's a proposition that many of us are interested in. The, what economists call the unpleasant arithmetic of debt dynamics can undermine living standards. Well, that's a familiar proposition too. And note the reference to PPPs, or at least to real purchasing power. That unregulated financial systems cause rising inequality, perhaps a reference to Piketty's book. The market takes no account of externalities of which climate change is the most important. Um, not such a bad list of topics to think about and work on. Today I'm going to talk about the first two, and if you ever invite me back, I'll come and talk about the other ones. Let's leave that for the moment. So let me start with global poverty, which I used to think was the easier of the two topics of global poverty and global inequality, but I'm not so sure anymore. It was first measured um, by Alawalia, Carter, and Chenry in 1979. They took an Indian poverty line using the 45th percentile of income in India, which turned out to be about $200 PPP in 1970 international prices, which if you update today is between 140 and 160 per person per day at 19, sorry, if you update to 85 prices, which is where the famous dollar a day line comes from. So this line was actually relatively generous compared with the lines that came afterwards. They calculated the number of people in the world below that line by taking GDP data. They had some Gini coefficients, which give you some idea of the spread of income in each countries, and they calculated the number under the bottom tail. And their cal they did not have China in their data, but of all what in those days were called LDCs. Remember when we used to call them LDCs? Um, the, that term is used frequently in the paper. More than half of people in LDCs were poor, 
according to the standard. And like the Pope today, they said, in spite of rapid growth in developing countries, which had actually promoted, uh, promoted a lot of agonizing around, nine, around this period, about 1980, um, when the World Bank was very concerned that there'd been a lot of growth, unprecedented growth in developing countries, but maybe not much effect on poverty. So they said that poor people had benefited to a very limited degree by the post-war growth in developing countries around the world. So that was the message of their paper. Um, the later measures updated and improved this method, starting with the World Development Report of 1990. Um, they used only household survey data instead of using national accounts data. And of course, at the beginning, there were very few household survey data from poor countries, and now there are hundreds um, of them. They moved away from India and generalized. So they took not just the Indian poverty line, but an average poverty line from various poor countries around the world. And the poverty lines in PPP terms are lower in poorer countries. So this is a regularity that we're spending just a moment on. If you look at national poverty lines where they exist, in really poor countries they tend to be very low, like a dollar a day. If you take the US poverty line, it's about 12 or 14 dollars a day, and they're strung out across the countries with richer countries having higher poverty lines. So what they did was, in the 1990 World Development Report, they said, okay, they sort of flattened out at the very bottom. So in the very poorest countries, all these poverty lines seem to be somewhere around a dollar a day per person in PPP terms. How about that for a definition of destitution in the world? And that's what they took, and that started out as a dollar a day in PPP terms. That got sort of solidified in that original report. It's a range, something like 75 cents to $1.20, but it became famous, and it has enormous rhetorical value. Um, you know, everybody in the world knows about the dollar a day poverty line, and that rhetorical value is being a, that rhetorical force has been both of enormous value in propagating this line, but also as somewhat of its millstone around its neck um, today, as we will see. So that became $1.08 when they computed it in 2000, which is a little odd when you think about it, since there was a lot of inflation between 1990 and 2000, so how come it only went to $1.08? Um, some of you, if you're very quick on the draw, might be able to infer from what I said yesterday of why that happened, but it's not of great importance. And then it became $1.25, which is also much too small an increase, in 2005. And without going into the details, let me just say the revisions are because PPPs change, different revisions of the ICP, because of inflation in the US um, and elsewhere. And also in the 2005 counts, and I'll show you this in more detail, because the index countries that were used to compute the poverty line were changed. Um, so I'll show you some numbers of that. So let me show you the, the current World Bank counts. Um, these current bank counts do not take account of the new international comparison program results I showed you yesterday. So these are old results, but they've been updated. And what the world looks like is this. Um, these are not, this is pretty positive, because these are not poverty rates. These are actually the numbers of millions of people in poverty. So, sorry, it's, yeah. Um, so, this, that thousand million is a billion people. Um, and it, the world used to be up near two billion, and now it's under a billion, um, a billion people. 
Um, and that's over a 30-year period. I'm not going to tell you anything that says that is wrong. So if you think, you know, Deaton's going to be all cynical again and tell us why we shouldn't believe this, I am not going to do that. Um, so I think the broad outlines of this are almost certainly correct. And you can see why. A lot of it is just China. All right? And if you look at it without China, there's still quite a lot of decline, much of which comes from India. If you look at sub-Saharan Africa, the increase, which was, there's a lot of population growth in sub-Saharan Africa, and a declining rate has been battling that population growth, and so it's pretty flat now. And that, you can see a slight tick down in the very recent years. This goes up to 2011. Um, in March, the World Bank will come out with new numbers based on the new ICP, and I'll talk about that a little bit. So here's what we've seen already. Much of it's driven by China and India, some sub-Saharan Africa. Um, one of the problems with sub-Saharan Africa is the surveys are not very frequent. And when they don't have surveys, they project it from the rate of growth of GDP. The rate of growth in GDP in Africa, to some disputed extent, is coming from commodity price booms, um, which don't always favor poor people. Um, so that may be somewhat of an exaggeration. Um, there's also a bunch of the ICP, the International Comparison Program that I talked about yesterday, and various procedural uncertainties certainly affect the level, but the direction of change is almost certainly robust for the obvious reasons that you can just see. I mean, it's true that you have to be careful. In China, all data are suspect and are subject to political manipulation. Um, I may get to tell you stories along the way about that, but, um, but remember, these are coming from surveys, not the national accounts. Um, in India, the national accounts are weak, and given the political importance of high growth, there's been little attempt to improve them in case the growth rates get moderated downwards. Um, but nevertheless, they're not using the Indian national accounts in computing these numbers, is using the surveys. So I think these are reasonable numbers. The Chinese thing may be a little bit exaggerated, but I think this is plausible. Um, the detail, on the other hand, is another matter. So let me talk about revisions. So yesterday I told you about these various rounds of the International Comparison Program, and um, you know, I, I'm encouraged by the fact that so many of you are still here when I talked about data revisions yesterday, that I'm going to do it again today. Um, but these can be fairly dramatic if you're worried about world poverty. So when the 1993 results came in, and actually that was around the time that Nick had just moved to the World Bank, and Nick had asked me to come and look at these numbers because there was a lot of concern about what was happening then. But when they switched from the 1985 PPPs to the new 1993 PPPs, um, then Latin America and the Caribbean, which had a 23.5% poverty rate, suddenly only had a 15.3% poverty rate. This is in the same year. This is in 1993. Similarly, Sub-Saharan Africa rose from 39.1% to 49.7% headcount ratio in the same year. There's no change in years. There's just changes in the way this is calculated. Okay, so this is a little bit disturbing. When you see these numbers, you say, wait, wait a minute, you know, can you steady this down a bit? I mean, why, why is this picture going in and out of focus um, all of the time? And actually, I have not really been able to document this, but I sort of lived through it, and it may be that I misremember. But I think this idea that sub-Saharan Africa is the world home of poverty and the total focusing on Africa, they say, well, Asia is not really a problem anymore. It's Africa we have to focus on. Had a lot to do with those numbers. 
And I've seen this again and again. Someone does a data revision, and then a few months later, people are talking about the unresolved problem of African poverty, which, of course, wasn't there the month before. Um, and, of course, there are certainly other reasons, too. So, you know, when the ground shifts under your feet, the people in the know may understand that you shouldn't really believe the numbers, but that doesn't mean they don't have a lot of effect on other people. Okay. So then there was another revision in 2005, um, and the ICP revision then, together with the bank's change in the poverty line, had much larger effects. So again, I'm using the same year, 1993. So East Asia and Pacific, their poverty, their poverty rate was doubled, 25.2 to 50.8 percent. In Sub-Saharan Africa, it went from under 50 percent to 57 percent, and world poverty increased by a third. So overnight, there were a third of a billion people in poverty who hadn't been in poverty the night before. Okay. The overall trends, I mean, the rate of poverty reduction is now at a higher level, but there's still a lot of poverty reduction going on, though the regional distribution of poverty is very different. And of course, if you go down to the country level, there's all sorts of jumping around going on all the time. Now, one of the themes of this lecture is maybe these numbers don't matter very much um, because they're not hardwired into any decision the bank makes. Um, these are for sort of popular consumption. They're for the Pope. They're for the UN. They're for Bono. You know, they're for Angelina Jolie. Um, and they get a lot of publicity, but the bank is actually not allocating any resources based on these poverty numbers, except not formally. I mean, the bank is subject to the same flows as everybody else. So if they suddenly think Af Africa is the problem, then over time there's going to be more resources go towards um, Africa. So the public discussion is certainly shaped by these numbers. Now, remember, if you remember from yesterday, but let me just restate it, what happened in the new ICP in 2005 is it made the richer countries richer relative to the poorer countries, or if you want to think about it the other way, it made the poorer countries poorer relative. To the there was a big increase in world inequality. Now, if you're setting your global poverty line in poor countries, which is how it's set, this is not going to have any effect on global poverty because, after all, that line is a poor country line. The fact that the U.S. gets much richer relative to those poor countries has no effect at all on the line, and so it should have no effect on the poverty count. It will certainly change the dollar value of those lines. Uh, and it'll make the dollar line value of these lines much smaller than it would otherwise have been, which is why it didn't go up as much as you might have thought. So what actually happened, what made the big difference, was the bank changed the list of countries defining the global line. Now, it's the same procedure as before. They just took the 13 poorest countries in the world and averaged their poverty line. But there were a different set of countries that happened to have relatively higher poverty lines. And so the line went up, and that's what put a third of a billion people into poverty. Now, this is sort of an absurd calculation. Some of you may have seen this picture before. But let me explain a little bit. This is the logarithm of mean household expenditure. So rich countries are up there, poor countries are down here. The blobs are, have area proportional to population. And these, what the blobs are here are national poverty lines. 
So what you see is the national poverty lines are way high for the rich countries, and they're much lower for the poor countries, okay? So that's the thing. So the procedure is let's take the poorest countries after this thing is flattened out and take the average of those as the world poverty line. So they have to have a cutoff somewhere, which is what they drew at the point A, and there are 13 countries to the left of the point A, and the average of their poverty lines, all expressed in PPP, was taken as the global poverty line. Now, it seems like it makes a certain amount of sense. But unfortunately, facts have a way of getting after things that are not very firmly based. So there's India there. India is the right of the cutoff. And that's because India's got too rich to have its poverty line counted. India is a middle-income country now, so its poverty line doesn't get to count. But imagine a world in which India was to the left of the cutoff. Okay? So India is to the left of the cutoff. Recalculate this global poverty line, P, and you'll get a lower poverty line because India has a very low poverty line in spite of it being a middle-income country. So as India got richer, it moved out of this thing which raised the global line which put 150 million Indians into poverty. So why did India get poor? Because India got rich. Right? I mean, okay, I, you're laughing, so you sort of understand what I say. Uh, I mean, you know, it doesn't make any sense, but that's what happened. I also wanted you to, you know, Guinea-Bissau is a very small country there that at this time, at this time, didn't even have a government. I mean, it was a failed state. It's about the size of Washington, D.C. It's not a very large place, okay? They take an unweighted average of those country poverty lines, okay? Now, <laughs> Who knows where Guinea-Bissau's poverty line comes from? But let's say that Guinea-Bissau gets rich, because say the world price of cashews goes up. Guinea-Bissau exports cashews. So the world price of cashews goes up. That could put 50 million Indians into poverty, right? Because the Guinea-Bissau line goes up, the world line goes up. All these poor people in India are created. Nothing happened. This is nuts, okay? They shouldn't be doing this. Um, and you know, but attempts to persuade people otherwise has not had any effect. Okay. So the, I think the bank actually confused itself in this process, and they blamed the ICP for the changes, not the fact that they changed the poverty line. And they didn't change the procedure for calculating the poverty line, to be fair. They'd always done it in the same way. It just gave a different result um, this time. Now, if you go to some of the paranoid hard right in the world, and I could give you some names if you like, they, the bank has its accusers who claim that it does such things in order to increase its relevance or maintain its relevance in the world by inflating the poverty numbers so that they have something to do. Okay? I don't believe that for a minute. Um, and Nick you know, will, I'm sure, back me up on that. That was not something that ever happened in the bank. However, the chief economist at the time, who is not Nick, so I'm exempting Nick, made the following rather unfortunate statement at the time. He said, the sobering news that poverty is more pervasive than we thought means that we should redouble our efforts, especially in sub-Saharan Africa. Okay? It would be just as true to say that riches, richness is more pervasive. This was an increase in inequality. So they might as well have just said richness is more pervasive than we thought. Now, that might lead to the same conclusion. So we should be more generous, especially with sub-Saharan Africa. But, you know, that's not what they said. 
And of course, the bank does better than a lot of other places. There are real horror stories from the Food and Agricultural Organization and so on um, that came up with hunger numbers, for instance, based on much weaker data. And the politics of this that you concern about is these are the targets for the World Bank. This is how the World Bank judges itself. And it shouldn't be producing its own numbers to judge itself. I mean, that's just common sense, I think. Now, how did the numbers reflect? Well, you might think this is important because reducing this measure of global poverty was Millennium Development Goal 1. You know, number one, first thing, reduce this. Okay. The bank increased the poverty line and the poverty count in the middle of this process, which seems sort of an unwise thing to do. And when this happened, I was expecting a global outcry from all of these people saying, what's going on here? Sort of like Newt Gingrich did when the CPI went wrong, you know, which I talked about in the yesterday's lecture. You know, you guys are in big trouble. Complete deafening silence. No one responded to this at all. All right. And that was when I began to understand that these really are not important numbers. I mean, the only people who would have been upset by this were Angelina Jolie, Bono, and the Pope. Um, but, you know, they're not really critical consumers of international statistics. <laughs> or as far as I can see, they're not. Um, and um, so, you know, you really do begin to think that these are not very important numbers. And, you know, the CPI is enormously important because hundreds of millions of dollars are transferred around based on those numbers, whereas no dollars are transferred around based on these numbers. Now, my claim is, as if they were more important, there would have been more international supervision of the production, as there is with the National Statistical Agency. They would take collective responsibility, and they would not be produced by a small group of people within the World Bank. So now <laughs> we're here again. There's a 2011 revision in new ICP. And this has put the cat among the pigeons all over again. Now, I th what I said yesterday was the 2011 ICP has reversed much of what happened in 2005. So now if we hold the $1.25 poverty line, global poverty will fall by more than a half. So if you stake the $1.25, the PPPs are now much smaller than they were before. That makes all these poor countries relatively richer. There's a lot fewer people in them under $1.25, and it, we go to, from 1.3 billion down to about 600 million. Okay? So, you know, what Kashik Basu, who's the chief economist of the World Bank, ought to be saying is that I wrote this speech for him. He's not going to give it. The, the inebriating news. <laughs> <laughs> Not sobering, but I, I guess inebriating is the opposite of poverty, of sobering. The, inebri <laughs> the inebriating news that poverty is less pervasive than we thought means that we should halve our efforts, especially in <laughs> sub-Saharan Africa. Well, you know, that's very funny, and it sounds like a joke. But you might want to ask yourself pretty hard, why did they say the first thing and they don't say the second thing? And then, you know, you begin to wonder whether some of those cranks have a point. You know, and I think it's certainly true. There's an asymmetry that the bank is much happier to live with a big increase in world poverty than it is to live with a big decrease in world poverty. And the bank has been stalling on what it's going to do with these poverty numbers and is not going to make a decision until sometime next year. So these numbers have now been out. The IMF has endorsed them, built them into all its policy making. The bank has put them in the world development indicators, but there's no appearance of them in the poverty numbers yet. So. 
There's a bunch of options that they could do. You could hold the global poverty constant, which is probably a sensible thing to do, but then the line would have to be increased to more than $2. That's not really politically palatable either. I mean, you bring the line up, um, but now that the poor world is richer, that would hold the number of poor people in the poor world about the same, though there still will be major changes across countries and around regions. Um, the World Bank's not decided to do. They may just decide to ignore the new ICP. And there's no indication that I've seen for that those who are designing the new sustainable development goals, as they're called, are understand that the poverty measures are in such turmoil or, to be cynical, that they would care if they did. Right? I mean, to me, nothing depends on these things, so why does it matter whether you can measure them or not? Um, one thing that I find quite encouraging is I talked about the deafening silence in 2005. There has not been a deafening silence this time. And so I was surprised and pleased by this so that it seems to be connected to more things. So the Center for Global Development in Washington was very active in noting the changes and their consequences. And they quickly calculated the implications for poverty and wrote about them on their website and caused quite a stir, a very useful function. Both USAID, which is the American aid agency, and DFID, which is the British one, are very concerned about this process and are trying to exert some leverage to, for a good outcome. USAID is now committed to a poverty reduction target too. Um, President Obama, in his 2013 State of the Union speech, um, committed the US to eradicating extreme poverty within two decades. And USAID does not have the capacity to do the measurement itself, so it's dependent on the World Bank's um, numbers. Um, it may not be dependent. Some of the very enterprising people at the center of global development who can write Python code um, basically scraped all the World's Bank data from the World Bank's website. And so now you can download it from their website and do your own poverty calculations. Uh, whether they will continue to do that, who knows. Um, so perhaps if it matters more, the production of the numbers will be taken more seriously. The global line that's the average of poorest country line is broken and needs to be replaced. And um, my oath to Richard that I will tell you how it ought to be replaced, I will come back to at the very end of this lecture. Okay? But in the meantime, first, I want to go on um, to talk about um, the inequality question, which concerned the Pope, um, rightly concerned the Pope so much. So Branko Milanovic has done very good work on this. And he's proposed three concepts of global inequality, which are quite distinct from one another. And in fact, you can have more concepts. But let me talk about these three concepts. Concept one is inequality between countries as units. So you can take all the countries in the world. They've each got a per capita income. And you can treat each country as one person and compute the Gini coefficient for the world. That's concept one. It takes no account of populations of different countries. That's very easy to calculate. You can calculate it from the standard databases. Um, concept two <coughs> is inequality between countries, but weighted by population. Okay? So the conceptual thing here is uh, it would be the hypothetical world distribution between persons if there was no inequality within countries. 
So give everyone in Britain average per capita income. Give everybody in Mali average Mali capita income. But now there's a lot more people in Britain than there are in Mali, and there are 1.3 billion people in China. Um, so you do that with all those numbers. And you'll see that those behave in very, very different ways. Now, of course, that's pretty easy to calculate, too, because all you need is the standard databases plus population for each country. The third thing is very hard to calculate, and you might think of it as cosmopolitan inequality, cosmopolitan being referring to cosmopolitan philosophy in which everybody in the world is just a person and there's one world. Um, and in order to get at that, you need to add in the distribution of income within countries. And of course, that's a much harder thing to get a hold of. It's a lot more disputatious and controversial. Um, and so it's inequality between all the, in quotes, citizens of the world. I don't much like the term because, of course, there is no world state for people to be citizens of. But in an imaginary cosmopolitan state, you would have all these citizens and we could calculate income inequality between them. And Milanovic is the one person who's done the work. And it's very difficult. And you can criticize it up the kazoo. But you, know, you would have to replace it with something better. And I don't think anyone's really done that. Very hard work. All of these involve income per capita. And there are other concepts of inequality that might concern you. The one I talked about yesterday is, is total GDP bigger in China than it is in the US? And a lot of people are concerned about that. For instance, the CIA um, worries a lot about the absolute size of countries um, rather than per capita and so on. And so you know, for that sort of international relations, for a number of concepts, you might want completely different concepts of inequality. I'm mostly concerned with well-being and poverty, so I'm going to stick to these um, three concepts. So this is, I think, Milanovic's later num latest numbers. This is from an article in Global Policy last year. This does not have the latest ICP numbers in it, um, but up to that. So there's concept one which is um, basically countries are moving apart and have been moving apart from 1950 up to about 2000. And over the last decade, they seem to have been moving together. So country, each country as a person, as a unit, the countries are sort of moving apart. There's no solo convergence going on here, or not what in the literature is called sigma convergence, meaning there's no reduction in the variance of per capita GDP across countries until very recently. And then you get this tick down at the end. We'll see that again. Concept two is weighted across people, and that has been declining for quite a long period, and its decline has been accelerating, according to Milanovic. And then concept three, of course, concept two um, is too optimistic because of the enormous increase in inequality that's happening in the United States, in China, and probably in India. Um, the only place it doesn't seem to be happening is in Latin America. Um, and so when you add that increase on over the whole world, which is presumably a thing the Pope is concerned about, it's not clear that inequality has been declining. Milanovic most recently has tried to take aboard the Piketty-type numbers and the top 1%. And he had the imaginative idea of saying, OK, we've got this inconsistency between household surveys and national accounts. Maybe that's all people at the top 1% who are hiding stuff. Let's attribute it to the very top of the income distribution. That's an extreme but interesting calculation. And that puts the world genie up to close to 75%. So that's you know, even higher. It would take us up to the top of the 
curve here. And it's not clear once you do that that there's actually any decline in the concept three um, inequality. All right, let me now show you my own calculations, which include the latest ICP. So this is concept one inequality, where each country is a unit. And I, you can see, that first of all, forget about the three curves. Just bring them all down on top of one another. And you see I get this. This is just I get. I mean, this is just from the WDI. This is not hard to do. Um, the, the, the world, the countries have been pulling apart um, until the last few years when you really get a dip down. A lot of those, there's a lot of countries in Africa. Um, they're pretty small. They've been growing fairly rapidly over the last decade. And that does a lot of this turnaround in between um, countries. That's why the world is getting closer. Um, now, the, the other thing is there's, I'm showing you three different ICP rounds in here, 1993, 2005, and 2011. Notice the, the 2005 is on top. And there's been some retrenchment in the data that came out this year. So this is what I was talking about before. The 2005 data made the world a much more unequal place. And then it's made it more equal again in the revision. It hasn't come all the way back, but it's come some of the way um, back. So the trends in this, again, are fairly clear and are probably roughly right. Um, but it's only concept one inequality. This is the standard deviation of logs, which is a convenient number to use. Now, what happens if you weight by population? So you look at all the people of the world ignoring within country. Well, it goes in exactly the opposite direction. Um, and that's pretty obvious, too, because you've got these two enormous countries, India and China, which are moving off the bottom of the world up into the middle class. And so there's two and a half billion people um, you know, which is two and a half out of seven in the, or eight in the world. Um, and they're moving from the very bottom up to the middle. And that's a very strong force um, for bringing global inequality down. And that's what you're seeing here. Now, once again, um, the top three lines, um, unfortunately, two of them have the same color. Um, the green one, um, the 93 ICP, um, then massively expanded in 2005, and then has contracted back again in 2011. And you can't go too far into the past without switching from the World Development Indicators, which are the World Bank numbers, to the Penn World Table. Um, but you can go back to the 85 ICP if you do that, and you can see that it looks like this is a relatively recent phenomenon. Um, that this concept, too, um, was sort of pretty flat up to 1980 and has been declining. You don't want to pay too much attention to this because the data um, for the Penn World Tables go back further than in many cases those countries existed, and you know a lot of it is a sort of extrapolation. If you want to convert to Gini coefficients, uh, it changes the general shape, but you've still got this. This is still all concept, too. Um, and the Gini coefficients are shaped a bit different, but you have the same progress, which is it's moving up at each round of the ICP. Now, the reason I brought these past ones is, is I wanted to show you this picture, which I've been hawking around the world for a while. Um, and this is somewhere where I was dead wrong. Um, but, well, maybe I was dead wrong, but let me tell you the story. 
Um, here is the Penrod tables 85, the Penrod tables 93, the WDI 93. Those two lines are different, but they're conceptually the same. I know what the difference is, but you don't want to know. Okay, so just think of those as being more or less the same. And then you've got the 2005, and I've eliminated 2011 for the moment. So those all look like, even though the lines are shifting all over the place, they're showing this decline in concept to world inequality. But, someone might say, you've no, you, you're not entitled to use these data in between ICP rounds. You should use the 85 data only for 85, the 93 data for 93, the 2005 for 2005, and all the rest of our interpolations, which you don't really, are of a different status. So the black dotted lines connect up 85 with 93 on the Penn World Table, and then 93 with 2005 on the World Development Indicators. And I've reversed the direction of concept to inequality. So, you know, what I've been saying until the very latest data came out is that we don't really know. Even concept two inequality could be going up rather than down. And there's all these uncertainties on top of this about the Chinese growth rate. Do we really believe it? All that sort of stuff. Okay. The trouble is why I've had to eat crow a little bit is if you put the new data in on top of this, put this last curve up, and connect up for 2011, um, you get this. So these data have come way back in, and now the, so if you believe, as I believe, that the 2005 ICP was sort of the outlier, then now there's much more consistency between the various benchmarks of the ICP and the extrapolations. So, you know, I, I've become a little more positive about the idea that this concept too, inequality, is actually declining in the world. But the big, the, the big um, caveat here is, as always, to do with how fast China is really growing. And we don't really know these ICPs, these PPPs very well, so it's a little bit doubtful. Um, concept three, I just, this is a sort of non-slide. Um, it just says, I don't know what's happening here. <laughs> you know? And concept three is a little worse than concept two because you've got to bring in all this household survey data. But the thing that really is clear is that, uh, you know, any conclusion you get with concept two is going to be a bit worse with concept one because there's all this expanding inequality within countries going on. And you should think about that. So um, <laughs> I've changed this slide about five times. Um, I used to think that inequality was much harder to measure than poverty, but I've begun to think that actually it's the reverse, that it's much more sensitive for global poverty. And part of the problem with the global poverty numbers, I mean, there's a lot of uncertainty here, as you can see, but part of the problem with the global poverty numbers is that hundreds and hundreds of millions of people live near these global lines. So if you don't really know where those global lines are, you've got a perfect storm of statistical catastrophe because you're trying to, you know, tiny variations in this number take hundreds of millions of people in and out of poverty, but you don't know where this number is. And there's no possibility that I can see of actually getting a robust number. So I disagreed with what the World Bank did, but even if I'd been in charge, I can't take away the uncertainty in the ICP numbers, and these ICP numbers changing from round to round is going to create chaos with these numbers. 
all the time. So there's a real question of whether there's, you know, there's some statistics you say we'd really like to know this, but if you just can't measure it to a useful degree of precision, and let me remind you of some of the things from yesterday, you know, that comparing living standards between people who have radically different bundles of consumption is a deeply hazardous task. So there, you know, this is not a technical problem at heart. At heart, it's really a conceptual problem. I mean, there, or at least a big chunk of the uncertainty is linked to, you know, maybe we just shouldn't be asking this question. Maybe we can't do it to acceptable precision. And uh, Tony Atkinson had pointed out this very obscure quote of my mentor and friend, um, Richard Stone, who in 1949, this actually comes from the minutes of an econometric society meeting, right? Who's ever read the minutes of an econometric society meeting? So I don't know what Tony Atkinson does in his spare time, but he reads the minutes. <laughs> of 60-year-old econometric society meetings. He says, I do not expect a very rapid resolution of the intellectual problems of making welfare comparisons between widely different com communities. And why do we need to compare the US with, say, India or China? Everybody knows that one country is very rich and another country is very poor. Does it matter whether the factor is 30 or 50 or what? Right? Well, I leave that up to you. I mean, but, you know, he was asking that question a long time. Why indeed? What is the purpose here? You know, except for the Pope, who seems to have an independent source of data. <laughs> <laughs> so again, you know, let me say there's no domestic relevance within countries. It's not used by the World Bank for concessional aid. Their entitlement to concessional aid is worked out at exchange rates, or at least averages of exchange rates. They don't use the PPP numbers. Um, the one thing that was better is the, the switch to PPP stopped the UNDP vastly exaggerating. We know that if we do this at exchange rates, you get huge differences in living standards between poor and rich countries, which are not real. So that, you know, the PPP tells you that you can't do that, but I'm not sure it gives you a very precise answer. They play a very minor role in determining IMF quotas. The IMF quotas are set by very complicated formulas, which have a little bit of PPP in them. Um, do the global poverty kinds and inequality measures have policy relevance? They're certainly used by activists and IFIs to argue for more money for aid. Um, and I think that's sort of why they're uncomfortable about um, living with a big reduction in apparent poverty, because it seems to undermine the case for aid. They're part of the MDGs or the new SDGs. Now, I know there are other people who are much less cynical about those than I am. Um, but, you know, the argument, I suppose, in favor of them would be that they've stirred up a lot of interest in these problems that wasn't there before. But, you know, these are not targets that anyone has any responsibility for meeting. No one gets punished if those studies, if those targets are not met. And in that, they're very, very different from domestic targets, where if the CPI goes wrong, there's hell to pay and people lose their jobs and, and bad things happen. So, and anyway, as I said already, you know, Pope Francis has his own views about poverty and inequality, and maybe he has access to a higher power um, that I don't have, um, and, um, you know, but his guess is about as good as mine, I think. You know, you could, I could argue in his um, favor. Um, so, 
again, I'm saying I think the same thing again. Does it matter if we're out by 50%? Just to reiterate what I said yesterday, within the EC, the EEC and the Eurostat countries, it really does matter if these PPPs are out. And that's because the European community structural funds are allocated based on rules, based on PPP GDP. So if your country is, I think, has a GDP per capita that's 75% or less of the EC average, you're entitled to large transfers from Brussels. Uh, and so big chunks of money depend on those numbers. And if you look at how that's organized, it's organized very, very carefully. There are lots of rules. These statisticians play with us all the time, but they can't do the things we're allowed to do. You know, they say we're prohibited by law from doing that. We can't release these data. We can release these. You know, they're very, very carefully um, monitored. There is no international government. Um, some cosmopolitan philosophers, including Thomas Puggy, who's probably the most prominent, have been arguing that the World Bank or other FIFIs should act as a world government. Um, I think that is somewhat of an overstatement of the World Bank's powers to sort of make transfers to equalize the distribution of income around the world. And other philosophers, particularly Rawls and Nagel, have argued that we shouldn't be doing this. I mean, there's the you know, um, Rawls's book that no one likes to quote, The Law of Peoples, which denounces foreign aid and denounces transfers between countries um, and is very, very closely and convincingly argued, at least to me. And Nagel has made very similar arguments too. So why do we need to know? And, you know, you can imagine I go to all these ICP boards and we sit around in the bar afterwards and we say, why are we doing this? You know, and people come up with all sorts of reasons and other people say, that's ridiculous. We don't need it for that. And it always comes down in the end to the CIA. The CIA really wants to know these numbers. And then people say, shh, you know, don't drink anymore. You know, let's stop this. So I, I, I have a couple of conclusions. Then I have one last topic, which is my promise to Richard to be positive. Um, so maybe Stone was right that we made less progress than we might think. Maybe the Pope is right. Um, maybe the accurate estimation of global inequality is possibly out of reach. And these just summarize what I've already said. Um, and here's one thing that's throwing out a heretical view. I don't think it would actually be too bad to calculate global poverty using market exchange rates. Um, and you couldn't use the spot prices. You'd have to use a three or four year average or something um, because they jump around so much. But the exchange rates between poor countries are not so wildly different from the PPPs between poor countries. So you're looking at India versus Kenya or something. That's not the big thing that's wrong. It's Kenya to the US or India to the US. So the all would be really changed is the dollar value of the line, um, which you could do a PPP for that. And in fact, in the original paper, the Alawalia, Carter, and Chenery paper, they did do the calculations at market exchange rates too, and they're not very different from the PPP ones. Um, they did, given that you pick a poverty line in poor countries. If you stick to $1.25, it'll make a huge difference. So you have to give up the dollar a day and take whatever comes out of these poor country lines. And you lose that rhetoric. And I don't think that's entirely trivial. I mean, you know, because if the World Bank is seen to be doubling the poverty line, you know, and the press don't understand, um, the FT, for instance, has repeatedly not understood the difference between PPP and exchange rate numbers. And so there could be a lot of misunderstanding. It will take a lot of nimbleness 
um, by the World Bank to um, clarify what's happening there. Um, for our academics who do use these numbers all the time, um, the recipe here is don't automatically reach for the Penworld table if you don't need it, right? Um, it's better to use the real local currency magnitudes when possible, for instance, if you're doing growth analysis. And the reason, of course, is that the PPPs, when they calculate a price index, um, if you're looking at the German growth rate, it's got Kenyan prices in there and U.S. prices there and Japanese prices in there. That really makes no sense. So if you want to analyze growth for individual countries, you want to do it all at their own currencies and not at international dollars, which are just not designed for this purpose. The other thing is now the World Bank is releasing a lot of these data. The ICP has most of these data not on the website, but you can apply for them, and they've been releasing them to bona fide scholars pretty easily. And you can calculate your own PPPs. You can drop countries. You can do it only for poor countries. You know, these calculations just have brought a dozen lines of code. It's really not hard um, to do this. So, you know, it's very easy to recalculate numbers that are more sensible for purposes that you want. So here's my little positive note at the end. Okay, it's actually more than little. So, you ready, Richard? Okay, <laughs> Richard, smile. Um, so there's some a bit here that's hard to get away with. You really can't make international comparisons without some measurement of prices across countries. So what we'd really like to do, we can't avoid the ICP, but we'd like to minimize the effect of its instability. One way to do that would be to run it every year instead of every six years. The trouble with that is that given its doubtful relevance and its huge cost, it's not entirely clear where the money to do that is going to come from. So we need some sort of comparable prices. And I've been reading Bob Allen, the, I guess, ex-Oxford historian. He fell afoul of being compulsorily retired and is now teaching in Abu Dhabi, which seems to me a terrible scandal, but I'm not here to comment on university retirement policies in the, in the UK. But to me, he's, he's one of the two or three really, really great all-time economic historians. And his amazing contribution to knowledge, and the, the biggest thing he's done, I think, is to document which he calls, what he calls the great divergence, which is a great the, most historians talk about the great divergence as what happened after the Enlightenment, but this happened 400 years before, or many hundreds of years before. And Alan had the wonderful idea, you know, if you're sitting in Oxford College, I think this occurs to you after a while, not actually in Nuffield, but in other Oxford colleges, that down in the basement somewhere, they have all the wage bills for the carpenters from the 14th century or whatever, you know. So you can go down there and dig all these amazing wage numbers out. So you can figure out what laborers got paid and what carpenters got paid and what the masons got paid for hundreds of years. And Bob actually realized that you could do this in lots of cities around the world because there are these long-lived institutions in many cities that have these records, and you can do this. So he did this for a whole bunch of cities, including London, Amsterdam, Vienna, Florence, Delhi, Beijing, and other cities around the world. In fact, there are dozens and dozens of cities in the full account of this. Now, of course, he's got these wages, and they're not much use without prices. So we're back to the problem 
we're looking at. And he's got a real problem here because, you know, we're having trouble over a few decades. He wants to make this work for 400 years and over all these countries in the world and using very imperfect historical data. So what he did was he went back to the budget studies of Davis and Eden in the 1790s for Britain, and he figured out what people were actually eating in Britain at the end of the 18th century. And he constructed these baskets. And you know, there's a list of what was in these baskets. And one of these baskets he calls a respectability basket. And the other one he calls a subsistence basket. And there's like a northern basket um, in which it's, you know, Scots people. As he points out, Dr. Johnson said, you know, that oats are fed to horses in England, but in Scotland they're fed to people. Uh, and he has a Scottish basket which has oats instead of bread in it or something. Um, and he makes these other, he makes this work across space and time with obvious substitutes for the local staple. So the English people drink beer and the Italians drink wine and olive oil for butter and so on. So they're arbitrary but obviously sensible substitutions. This is also much helped by the fact that most staples have pretty much the same calorie content. So wheat and rice per kilo have about the same number um, of calories. And what he then calculates is he takes his earnings, he calculates how much a carpenter would earn in a week or a month, and then calculates how many baskets um, they could buy. And he has to make various assumptions about family size and things like that. So he calculates what he calls welfare ratios, which are the numbers of baskets that can be bought with these earnings. And then he gets this great divergence. You probably can't see the yellow line here, or maybe you can. But these cities are London and Amsterdam, which are the red and blue ones on the top. This just comes from one of his papers. Um, the, um, the ones on the bottom are um, Vienna, Delhi, uh, Florence, and Beijing. And what you've got here is they're all doing pretty well. That, you know, you could actually have three times the subsistence bundle um, back at the end of the 14th um, century. But by 1850, and in fact before 1850, um, everybody but London and Amsterdam had been hammered down to subsistence. And, you know, for the people who were being, you know, attacked by the colonial powers, you can see what that happens. But the Spaniards, I mean, the way Alan puts it, is that um, the Brits and the Dutch won the Age of Empire. So they come out of this gigantic tournament, um, really wealthy. Um, and these people had all sorts of luxuries in their diet. They were beginning to consume sugar and all sorts of things that hadn't been there before. And then he goes on much more controversially to tell a story of the Industrial Revolution based on high prices in Britain, a story of the different settlement patterns in North and South America. North America was settled by rich Brits, where South America was settled by starving Spaniards. Um, and he argues that you can explain all the stuff that people have been explaining by institutions by relative prices, you know, a much more standard economic, old-fashioned economic explanation. So he actually makes a very daring suggestion that we use these today. You know, he says, well, this subsistence bundle is not great, but, you know, it's transparent. And, you know, when you see the slides I've been doing about how these poverty lines are established, why not just make a sort of list of goods and make these substitutes? Is this feasible? So it bypasses a lot of the problems 
um, with the ICP because you don't need prices for education, health, government services, or other difficult items because they're not in the bundle. It's a very much bare-bones, stripped-down, subsistence bundle. That, of course, has its drawbacks, too, because people consume stuff that's not in those baskets. Um, but nevertheless, maybe what you gain in lack of completeness, you, gain, you lose in lack of completeness, you gain in transparency. You've still got quality problems, but they're relatively contained in trying to price someone something like a customary bundle for a poor person. Now, one test, that one, a really extreme <coughs> stress test on this index is to say, would it work in Britain now or in America now? And this seems absurd. And also, one of the strikes that's always been held against the dollar-a-day line is people say it's supposed to be in adjusted for international prices, but there's no way you could live in Britain or there's no way you could live in the United States on a dollar a day. Well, here's the calculation. So here's Allen's subsistence bundle, which comes from 18th century consumption patterns apart from propane. Um, and I'll tell you about propane in a minute. But you get like a kilo of uh, rice every two weeks. Um, sorry, you get a kilo of rice every two days. 185 kilos. You get some dried beans. You can get some beef and butter, vegetable oil, some soap. Remember, this is 18th century, so you can get some candles and some lighting oil, and you get a three square meter of cotton cloth in a year. And heat is a bit hard, right? Because Alan puts coal in his bundle. Um, I couldn't price coal from the ICP because they don't collect it in the US anymore. Um, and in fact, energy is really hard. Um, because if you live in a cold country, the 2 million BTUs that Allen allows would not heat you in the United States. But remember, most of these countries, you don't need 2 million BTUs to keep warm. Also, what is interesting about energy is that if you're connected up to the gas mains, you can get this really very cheaply. I mean, it goes down to $24 from $156. Um, but if you don't have a house, um, or a connection to the mains, and you have to buy it, you know, using propane or cow gas or whatever it's called here. Um, you know, get a canister. It's a very expensive way of getting heat. So that overstates things. So I just evaluated. These are using the nice thing about the ICP 2011 is you actually get the average prices for each country for items. So they're not indexes or anything. It says how many dollars people paid for a kilo of rice. And also the other thing nowadays is you can do your own ICP um, because you can just go on Sainsbury's website or something and find these prices. And actually there's a project at, in MIT that called the Billion Price Project, which is actually scraping prices from every website of every store in the world they can find. And so gathering just an enormous volume of prices. So there really are new ways of calculating these data. Adds in 5% for rent. So what does it turn out to be? It's $2.79 per person per day. OK? OK, I'm not saying it's luxury. <laughs> You'd have a hard time on this. You'd have to sew your own clothes. And there's no thread in here. Um, <laughs> and if you're connected up to the mains, um, so you're living in a hostel, but you have to pay for your own gas. It goes down to 241 a day. Now, is that a high number or a low number? Well, the latest Indian line by the Rangarajam expert group is 267 per person per day urban and 178 per person per day rural, compared with 279 to 241 from the U.S. on the previous slide. 
So, you know, I have not done this for the whole world, but if you get pretty much the same numbers for India and the US, I think this is a really promising way to go. Now, it's going to take a lot of persuasion. Bob Allen can't get this paper published um, because the guys who do the poverty statistics hate it so much. Um, but I think this is worth real serious consideration. And I've always been a believer in these statistics of favoring transparency over a sort of baroque complexity that can come out of what economists will do left to themselves sort of idea. You, you know, there's an accountability in a democratic part of this that really is important. And if you can explain it to people, you know, maybe even Bono would understand. Um, so I think this is a real possible way forward. The other possible way forward, which I've talked about before, is we could focus much less on income poverty and focus on things like hunger or anthropometrics or infant mortality and so on. To some extent, we're doing that anyway. So this is my last slide, just to summarize all three days. I want people to think about what I call the political lives of numbers. I mean, how it is that politics gets into these numbers, how the politics, even the details, and that's why I've been probably boring you with many more details than you want to hear, but it's in the very details that these conflicts get resolved. Um, and sometimes it's individuals, sometimes it's groups, institutions, or even countries. And we've seen examples of all of these. But of course, it's not true that anything goes. This is not a council of despair. It's just a council of wisdom that you have to recognize this. And there's lots of science in there too. And what's more is better science and cleaner measurement limits the role for political manipulation. But I also want to say that I don't think of politics in this as a necessary thing. These numbers have a social purpose. They have a social life. They have to serve the people. People have different views about things, and those have to be reconciled in the way these numbers are created. So it's a part of a democratic, accountable body that these statistics should favor that. And what's more is they force accountability. So my argument is the distinction between the US CPI or the US or the Indian price um, the Indian poverty lines and the global mess that I've been talking about today are largely a result of lack of accountability. It's because no one cares about these numbers that the regulatory mechanism has never been put in place to care about them. And for me, that defining moment there was this deafening silence when these numbers were changed in 2008. Now, of course, if I was giving three more lectures, there are lots of other great topics in which you can talk about here. I mean, census counts are enormously politically sensitive and contested, and there have been wonderful stories of competing political interests and in science in the United States over various censuses, particularly the 1980 census. Um, there's a huge amount of malfeasance going on today over the measurement of life expectancy. Um, there are all sorts of outfits up there who are making up data and putting it on the web, and then it appears in all sorts of unlikely um, places. So the poverty and inequality examples I've given in these lectures are really just two examples um, of what I think of as a very general phenomenon. So thank you very much. Thank you.
stay there or come in? I'm happy to take questions, yeah. yeah. Um, <coughs> Under your chairmanship. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm just going to abuse the chair very slightly to ask <coughs> questions because you force... No, someone's been studying development for nearly 50 years and you're trying to think your way back to what you saw, what you read and what the conversations were. Let me just remark about two things. I actually think that people's attention shifted to um, Africa and worrying about Africa for reasons probably not much to do with the poverty numbers. Um, <coughs> India and China you know, were independent about 20 years before most of uh, Africa and you saw Miral's very influential, dis disappointingly influential book, Asian Drama, since it wasn't very good, um, focusing very strongly on Asia as uh, irredeemably stuck for all sorts of sometimes pat patronising reasons about uh, ideology and inability to change and acceptance and so on. But you saw people writing about uh, Asia when it was independent for those two decades before Africa was independent and what was happening in Africa actually under colonialism didn't get that much uh, cover <coughs> and then you found of course big um, and, and we used to teach development by saying that uh, Asia was land scarce and uh, Africa was land rich and so on so there was a feeling at the time that um, the disasters were in Asia. Uh, and then, of course, the after independence, you had different kinds of reporting, and uh, famines in Africa were, were reported much more strongly than they were elsewhere. So I, I I'm absolutely with you that there was a shift in attention, but I'm not sure it had to do with poverty numbers. The second thing was the, the World Development Report 1990, and it was a very big event, and it's difficult to convey because you see World Development Reports and poverty numbers all the time now. The World Development Report 1990 was a big event. It was, as Angus explained very clearly, the first attempt um, to do this in any systematic way, apart from the earlier studies with Alawalia and Chainery and, and so on. And it wasn't a political thing, um, you know, remember 1990 was the end of the Reagan, towards the end of the Reagan Thatcher era. It wasn't dri driven. They weren't particularly bothered about uh, right. poverty. And I think it was really a hangover from McNamara because Chainery was very much McNamara's chief economist. And McNamara had a passion for measuring everything, you know, the body bag counts, and oh, you remember all that stuff. And Chainery was very much in that uh, spirit. So I think it was in some ways an, not a strongly world political event, that. Um, and many of us attacked. It was Lynn Squire who did most of that, wasn't it, uh, Angus? Who was in charge of the overall. Yeah. And many of us had a really strong go at Lynn about doing this at all for the reasons that you, des you described. There's so many people around the poverty line that any shift around in it was bound to have an enormous effect. Secondly, that 
if you've got 50% or whatever it might be below a poverty line, it actually can't be the most important line. Because what about all those people right down below? I mean, there's a sense in which it's missing very important things, things that should consume you much more than the people around the poverty line. And all these examples, all these arguments were put. But ne- and, and, and of course, you know, as you've seen in coming back to Alan, you do sometimes do much better by looking more closely at what people can actually buy. And that's much easier to understand that than some great poverty line with too many numbers in it. And so he, Lynn Squire got quite a lot of flack, including from myself and others, I mean, not publicly, but privately. <laughs> Yet, looking back, um, and the Millennium Development Goals, which grew out of this kind of thing before long, I think that period wasn't that bad. And the Millennium Development Goals, let's remember, there were seven of them, of which poverty, the income one, was just one. So I think it did lead to focus, um, and it did not lead, actually, to too much focus on the income side, although it led to some substantial focus on on that side. But the other dimensions really did get a look in. So looking back, I think that period, 1990 to 2000, saw intelligent discussion, focus, and then somehow, and Millennium Development Goals, which really did ramp up focus on development, but it sort of got stuck and people started mesmerizing about the poverty line itself. It sort of got a life of its own, which led into all the kind of difficulties you've explained so well. So it was, it was something that sort of took over in a way and distorted, even though for a period of 10 years or so, it may not have been so bad. And I, I wondered, looking back, what you thought about that. Yeah. And put I, Africa and Asia to I agree with some of that, yeah. not all of it. I mean, I think... There were many other things in Africa. I mean, Africa grew relatively quickly up until about 1980, and then it fell off the end of the world. So those are their own statistics, not just the PPP statistics. So there were a lot of other things um, going on. I agree with that. But it's interesting. I mean, you say the 1990 World Development Report was not political. It was intensely political for the reasons you've just said, because it was a renunciation of the Reagan years, which had very heavily infected the bank. Um, I first went to the bank in 1979, so I was the you know, as a consultant and in and out um, through most of the 80s. And it was all about getting the prices right. No one was interested in measuring poverty and so on. So that World Development Report was more like saying, hey, guys, those years are behind us. We're now back to focusing on poverty. So, I mean, I agree it was not political in the detail, um, but it was certainly a a change of direction um, for the bank, um, in the Reagan years where Ann Kruger had been um, chief economist and so on. And there was a very different flavor of the bank doing its business during those years. So I think it's always political and not necessarily for the worse. Yeah, we should open up. But what I meant was it wasn't political in the sense of determined by a conspiracy of those in power. It was a reaction. Yeah, exactly. I don't believe in conspiracies. I think conspiracies, you know, there's plenty of political effects out there without talking about conspiracies. But it was reactive rather than determined by, I think. Let's open it. um, Lady here, please. Um, I was very interested uh, that you've chosen uh, Pope Francis' apostolic exhortation as your, the starting point for your very interesting lecture. Um, and I just wondered uh, if, well, whether you regard uh, 
his various statements about economics as a kind of um, a welcome stimulus for the conversation or unhelpful or just simply inaccurate. Um, uh, could you sort of summarise, really, what's your view of uh, Pope Francis' uh, input into the, the conversation, the global economic conversation? <laughs> uh, Angus, can we, can we just take a couple more just to sure, get things? Sure, OK. Thank you. <laughs> Um, and welcome back, Abigail, I should say. Um, please. Shifting the topic slightly to the issue of international comparisons of uh, local inequalities within countries, uh, taking up the issue of income inequality in America or England or India or wherever, do you think the statistics that are produced for that uh, internationally for the approximately 200 countries in the world are sufficiently robust to test out hypotheses like whether uh, greater inequality causes greater, uh, less life expectancy. I wish to bring the attention uh, to the case of ethnic minorities who are oppressed by their own governments. So this here is a case of <laughs> inequality or poverty. I don't want to pronounce those words. Um, it is there, for example, in Sri Lanka, in the last 65 years, 67 years, the ethnic minorities have been politically and economically oppressed, and now they are very, very poor. I mean, they don't want money from others. Sure. They just want to be left alone to find their own means, which is the, which the government is not allowing. Okay. What about those people? Let me, let me start with that and work back. I mean, I actually think that um, economists have tended to focus too much on income inequality and not, much, not as much as they should have done on inequality between groups. So I'm with you on that. I just don't have anything to say about it. I mean, I agree with you, but it's not one of the topic of my lecture. Um, the income inequality within data, the within country income inequality data are very uneven. Um, they're very difficult even in um, the best data sets in the world, um, like the U.S. Um, they're getting better as more and more people work over those data, and as the tax authorities are letting more people um, use their data. But it's very, very fraught and difficult field. And you get huge changes in measured income inequality when, for instance, they change the questionnaire design, um, in the way it's measured. So with care, there's obviously an enormous amount of work going on. The cowboys that pull data from the web and run international regressions, I don't think that work is worth the paper it's written on. I think the evidence that income inequality compromises life expectancy is of that nature. I think it's just wrong. Um, I don't think there's any such evidence. Um, so, but the data are not good. Um, that's clearly right. And that's one of the reasons why the concept three inequality, which depends on within country inequality, is the hardest of all, and why I didn't talk about it very much. Um, what did I think of Pope Francis? It would have been better if he'd had someone make his speech consistent with the international data, you know or explain why he didn't like the international data instead of just um, sort of playing into this populist belief that everything is getting worse in the world and the world is going to hell in a handbasket. But otherwise, I sort of like that statement, as I hope you, I hope made clear. Um, I think those are things in different language 
that we are all worrying about and should be deeply concerned about. And the act that the financial sector is not under control um, and that income inequality deeply corrupts democracy is something I worry about all the time. Um, and I think it's been still understudied, and political scientists and economists ought to work on that. So I like the statement, and I, it's very good to have a pope coming in on the right side of those issues, I think. It would be better if he tried to get his facts right, but, you know. And, and the papal infallibility is a joke, right? I mean, the pope is only speaking infallibly when he says he's speaking infallibly, right? And I don't think he said that. So um, <laughs> we've got a good ex-Catholic there who's confirming my interpretation of the infallibility doctrine. Um, <laughs> but um, So he never said that this was infallible, but he, you know, he's got people working for him, and they could figure this out. He could call up the World Bank. Anyway. Yeah. He's quite good on externalities and climate change also, right? Well, exactly. I mean, I thought the climate change one is exactly the right thing to say, and I put that there because I thought you'd like it. There, uh, there are uh, two more very short questions because we're almost out of time. There were so sh- Oh, yes, please. Um, first of all, thank you for the lectures of the last two days. I attended yesterday and attended today. Um, I do agree that the Allen model is the right direction, I think, you know, but it just needs some tweaking to bring it more up to date. Instead of saying, like, yeah, meats yeah. and beans and so on, let's put that down as carbohydrates, protein, and so forth. Sure, yeah. And they said, fuel, uh, put it down as just energy consumption. Yeah. Um, but do you actually use a big data analysis model when you do process your calculations? Do you use big data when you actually calculate your economic models? I'm not quite sure. There's no definition, agreed on definition, I know of big data. Okay. Well, uh, my understanding of big data is a space analysis of, of, of a vast amount of information so you can see fluctuations and changes and more or less predict what may happen. Oh, I see. Well, I mean, I think, you know, I do all sorts of data analysis, but sometimes there are hundreds of millions of observations and sometimes there's only a few. The ICP that I really talked about yesterday is certainly a big data exercise because it collects hundreds of millions of prices around the world. Um, They're sort of concentrated in the form in which you saw them here. Just let me, I welcome though the thing about the Allen line. If I were doing this seriously, I would not start with the British line from 1795, right? Um, You would go to like an Indian household survey and you'd take something like what someone around the Indian poverty line consumes um, in terms of rice and wheat and milk and lentils and so on, and make some allowance for clothing and rent and so on. So that's how I would do it. And I think that's feasible. Um, and it really ought to be done. So what I was showing you here was sort of like, hey, if I take a line from 18th century England, I price it in the U.S. today, and then it comes out to be the same as the Indian poverty line, I think that's a pretty amazing um, thing. And it does suggest that this could be made really quite robust in a way that could be really quite useful and very transparent. Political influences on the figures as well, because you're getting you're getting straight data from source rather than any manipulations yeah. from any no, outside no, no, sources right. that want to project. You know, like say China's influence or wanting to show that they're better than what they actually are at the moment. Yeah, you haven't been able to do that in the ICP before. So one great revelation with the 2011 one is that they had a global list of a thousand or so items. 
and you can get the raw prices on that. So it says, you know, Kenyans on average in 2011 paid so many shillings per kilo of rice. And those data are a bit sparse, but there's a lot of data there and you can use them. And I was amazed trying to fill this in, just how easy it was to go to supermarket websites in various countries and get some idea of whether I was looking at the right number or the, like, the right units, for instance. I mean, you know, 20 years ago or five years ago, that would have been essentially impossible. Anyway, thank you very much. Thank you. We, we should stop. <laughs> <laughs>